Welcome to Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedoms with George Christensen. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore. Conservative One. I'm George Christensen, Australian Member of Parliament and host of Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedom. And I've got a very special guest on the podcast episode today. He is, in my view, one of Australia's greatest legends, uh, the king of the airwaves, who has just recently announced that he's going to be retiring from radio, which I think is a great shame, but apparently under doctor's orders. And I'm sure he's not going to fade away, but he's going to keep in the spotlight doing what he does best, which is reflecting the nation's mood. I'm talking about the one and only Alan Jones. Thank you very much for joining us uh, for Conservative One, Alan. Thank you, George. It's my pleasure. Alan, you almost need no introduction, just about everyone in Australia knows you, um, but can you just let me and my listeners know a little bit about your life's journey? Because it's been more than just radio, although that's where most people know you from. So just tell Mm. us a bit about Alan Jones, the man. Well, George, um, it's a fairly simple story. I was born to a farming family on the Darling Downs. They weren't well-to-do. My mum and dad died never having had a holiday. So I always say I don't need anyone to preach or lecture to me about poverty. We'd seen all of that through terrible, terrible droughts. Uh, But my mother was a very intelligent woman, in fact. But in those days in Queensland, she was a teacher, but she had a a degree and very, very special skills. But she went into uh, teaching the deaf and dumb people. It was a deaf and dumb school at Holland Park. And But to get promotion in education then, it's not like that now, you had to go where the department told you, and I think you might be aware you went to then a level one school and a level two, level three, based on the population of the school. That caused her to be appointed to a tiny little one-teacher school, not far from Oakey or down towards John Daring yep. called Sabine. It's no longer there, uh, right on a railway siding, Sabine. And there she had the fortune or misfortune to meet uh, an impoverished orphan farmer and love being what it is, they they married. And so mum sort of went into that business about keeping the whole show going. It was very, very difficult because uh, we had awful, awful droughts, um, mm-hmm. some of which, you know, some of which even I, I can't talk about in the sense that, you know, a cow would have a calf and the cow couldn't afford, didn't have the milk, couldn't produce the milk to feed the calf. And we had to get rid of the calf. And you don't want to tell people mm-hmm. how that happened. It was terrible. And then I'd sort of go over and a cow would go into a dam and, you know, there was running out of water. And the further she went in to get it, the more she got bogged. She wasn't strong enough to get out. We'd get the tractor out and have to pull her out. That, you know, those things are ingrained on my mind. And so mm-hmm. I, I loved all that. I just loved the farm. But my father, who I suspect would have been very bright if he'd been given a chance, but his mother died when he was born. And so he didn't have any education at all, but he actually was very firm. He said, no, you're not coming back here. We'll give you an education. In those days, you know, you had the bank manager, you knew, you know, your your character counted for everything. And so there was no high school between Toowoomba and the New South Wales border. So if I was to go to secondary school, 
I had to go to boarding school and my father yeah. went in and borrowed the money from the bank manager and the bank manager said, we know Charlie Jones will pay it back eventually. So I got that opportunity of going to Toowoomba Grammar and from there on I, I went to Brisbane. When I when I went, when I graduated from, from secondary school, I didn't have the opportunity to go to university because in those days I was too young, so I was 16, you couldn't go. And, and you could take a teacher scholarship. So I got this teacher mm-hmm. scholarship, which was only for one year. And I became a teacher, so I did my first degree at night time, and it was during that degree that I got a job at Brisbane Grammar School. I think I was about 19 uh, to mm-hmm. teach French at Brisbane Grammar. And from there then I progressed and I was I was then, I don't know how it all happened, I got a letter from the King's School at Parramatta when I was about 25, and the uh, headmaster there said he'd liked, he'd heard about me or something, and would I come down for an interview? So I remember flying down, and the airfare was, 40 pounds or 40 dollars or something return return so i paid when i got there they reimbursed me and i was the senior english master at the king's school but there i met i was teaching the son of the deputy prime minister doug anthony and we were at speech day one day and suddenly this man loomed up beside me doug i said oh mr anthony what are you doing here he said i came here to meet you he said my my son told me i should meet you i said oh yes so we had a yarn and i told him i was interested in politics so eventually I took a job with him, and from there yeah. I won. I won a sort of a, a minor scholarship to Oxford University uh, to study there. And when I came back, because the Oxford University exams are in the middle of the year, there's nowhere to work, and I had some very good friends on um, uh, on the Liverpool Plains. Dr. Jeffrey Abram, who was a good person, and he owned an airline. He said, "Oh well, I'll give you a job here because this airline's hopeless. <laughs> I knew nothing about airlines, but can you run this airline?" So we somehow made that work. And from there, there was a there was a, a a vacancy in the seat of Earlwood because the then Premier Eric Willis or the previous Premier Eric Willis had retired from the seat and Neville Rand was in the ascendant, but he only had a one seat majority. So they all said, "Oh, you should stand for this," because there were people in Sydney who knew me, even though I didn't know them. So I ran, and it was a titanic campaign. I've got to say, because Neville paraded the streets with Jill, and they were a formidable couple. And so I say, George, fortunately, I lost. <laughs> I'm rather glad I did. But anyway, anyway, I did. And then I, I contested the pre-selection for the seat of North Sydney, which mm. was the safest, safest seat, a Blue Ribbon Liberal seat, safest seat in the country, held by Bruce Graham. And it was a massive pre-selection. There were 28 candidates, I think, university professors and all these sorts of people. Mm-hmm. And the ABC ran a program on Monday night, Four Corners program, in which they said, oh, we think it'll be a, a, a two-horse race and it'll come down to Alan Jones or this Peter Solomon. Now, mm-hmm. uh, there were all sorts of people in it. I mean, Peter Collins and John Spender and, I mean, I can't remember them, but there were, you know, all sorts of people who subsequently made something of their life in liberal politics. But it, it was a very controversial affair because there was a pre-selection panel of 50 and on the Tuesday yeah. before the pre-selection, uh, Frank Walker, who was the Attorney General in New South Wales, announced in the federal national Pass state parliament that Lienko Urbancic, whom I didn't know, but he was one of these right-wingers in the in the party, that Urbancic was a Nazi war sympathiser. And Urbancic, okay. the two of us, Peter Solomon, he would never have voted for in a million years. So they, mm. they got rid of Urbancic from the pre-selection, and that meant that Solomon had one more vote anyway. The long and the short of it was... Solomon won the pre-selection, 26 votes to 24. He subsequently only lasted a fortnight because he'd, he'd made a mess of his pre-selection application and there were some inaccuracies there or something. But in the meantime, 
Malcolm Fraser, whom I didn't know, rang and said, well, you know, they reckon you can make speeches. You should be able to write them. That's what he said. So I went there to see him and he said, can you start on Monday? And and I started there and we continued. And then, George, came this very critical point in, I suppose, Australian business life in that a group of business people went to the Prime Minister, unbeknown to me, and said, look, we want to, we'd like Jones to come and do this gig for us. Oh, what's it about? And you won't believe this, but the issue that the employers of Australia were worried about and they knew nothing about was superannuation in 1981. Mm-hmm. And the unions were big and they people feared that they had enough money to buy BHP. So I left the Prime Minister's office after about, um, well, the notification. PM said, oh, can you stay until I can fill the thing up? And Alexander Downer replaced me on the staff mm-hmm. of Prime Minister Fraser. And I came to fight this battle for... Uh, superannuation, some kind of equity between the unions. And it was a real, really horrific fight. Simon Crean headed the union movement. And then from there, I uh, in Sydney, I, while I was doing this, someone said, oh, will you coach Manly? <laughs> Manly. And I said, no, 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 I haven't got time to do anything anyway. I eventually did. And we won the premiership. And they hadn't won for 39 years. And then they said, someone said, oh, well, we're going to nominate you to coach Australia. Oh, for God's sake. So anyway, I became coach of Australia. And we did all that stuff. And then when I got back from there, this is going on, but this is the whole story. I got back from there. They asked me to address the National Press Club, which I did. And then John Brennan, who had been, I mean, he was the sort of the legend of radio and he made people and he, I didn't know him, but he rang and said, look, I'd like to see you. You should be in radio. God, I said, I've never been in a radio station in my life. So I went over and did this bit of an audition and uh, Breno then rang me three days later. and He said, look about that audition. Uh, the program manager here says you won't make it in radio. Oh, I said, that, that, doesn't matter. <laughs> that doesn't matter. I said, I've got a good job. I've got a job. I'm perfectly happy. About two days later, he said, oh, look, they've got a proposal here. They'd like to put another pro- proposition to you. There's a very fine woman at the ABC whom you know, George, but I won't name everyone knows who she was, prominent woman of the ABC, and she subsequently became a very significant public figure. But you do a twosome. I said, look. Look, it's me or nothing. I mean, I'm not going to go in there. I want to rise and fall. I don't need the job and whatever. So I declined. And about um, three days later, they said, oh, would I come to a feed at the Marigold restaurant in Sussex Street? And there was this night chap, David Maxwell, who was the general manager of the station. He said, right, we're going to take the risk. We're going to, we're going to take the risk and we'll um, we'll give you the job. So he went on and there were these paper tape napkins, you see. I mean, this is the best part of the story. And he said, oh, look, um, we've just got a bit. And I thought, what's going on here? And because I was very well paid at the Employers Federation, I was on $42,000 plus a car, which was big time, big time. I mean, Professor John Rose, who was working with me with the Prime Minister, said, mate, get down there and sign up. So it was big time, 42 grand. This is about 1981. And a car. So here's David Maxwell saying, look, um, you know, you're inexperienced. I know that people know you, and I know it. And press club, I thought, oh, what's going on here? And he said, we can only offer you $130,000. And I thought, what? <laughs> and Kerry Packer, he used to say to me, if you really want to make up your mind, make up your mind in 10 seconds. And I said, well, there's this paper serviette here. Can we sign up? And that was in 1985. And here I am talking to George Christensen. Well, what happened to the guy who said that you wouldn't make it in radio? <laughs> well, he's very lucky that I haven't named him. He's still around. <laughs> I haven't named him. Yes, what happened to him? 
And I wonder, I haven't had a, I haven't had a little card from him this week. I can tell you. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Now, uh, you've you've said a few things there which begin to explain the answer to the next question. Your passion for the bush, in particular, and for family farms. But what drives you to do the things that you do? To to particularly the things that you're passionate about. What drives you for those issues? Well, George, I'm no different from you, I think, and you get into trouble and so do I. Uh, you can't help if you believe. Now, we were in drought, horrible drought. I was only, I wasn't very old, but I can remember there was no help, no no concern. We were, we were unwanted, the farmers. And on the wall here, uh, where I'm talking to you now, I have a picture of the farm and it's there to remind me because there's not an animal in sight, there's not a fence in sight because we had to take all the fences down, just let them go where they could. Mm. And eventually the this person came in from the bank in Brisbane, the, the head officer, they must have checked the books against the Bank of New South Wales at Oakey. And thankfully my mother, she was a wonderful woman, tough as nails, dad was a little softy, but mum was tough. And they said, look, uh, we've we've come to... Uh, repossess here, you'll have to move on. <laughs> I was a little kid. I didn't know what that all meant, but she said, we're going nowhere. Do you understand? Nowhere. Yeah. I think you should go, and would you please close the gate on the way out, she said. God, I felt so proud of her. And so this is, and I see this happening today, and and I see this quote-unquote, or the bushfire relief, all this money's given, where is it? And there are people writing to me every day and say, I've seen nothing. And, you know, when you go through all of this, it's etched in your mind. I mean, it's you can't escape it. It's part of your DNA. And mm. I felt that if ever I had a chance to do something for people that weren't that wasn't done and wasn't the assistance wasn't there for my parents, then I was obligated uh, to do whatever I could do. And as I said, I couldn't live with the memory of my father if I didn't do what I do because – you can't ever forget in life where you've come from. And I don't yeah. forget that and, and I don't apologise for it. Yeah. If you could summarise uh, Alan Jones's philosophy of life in a single sentences or a few of them, yes. what would it be? Yes, single be? sentence. Single sentence, George. The only thing you get without hard work is failure. That's a pretty good philosophy. Very true. You know, Very and true. I think, you know, or... Make sure you're the first to turn the light on in the morning, the last to turn it off at night. See, we were we were always taught we had nothing. We never had a holiday or whatever, but we thought we were terrific. Mum always had a meal on the table. She could always cook a cake, marvellous cook, bake the cake. We never had dirty clothes. We never had holes in our socks. But at the same time, there was no there was no spare cash. We had no electric light. I mean, I opened an art exhibition here about 10 years ago in Sydney, and the principal of the school that I opened it at said, oh, Mr. Jones, would you like to see the Art, well, I said, yes. So I went out and here was this table full of things and there was this hurricane lamp on the table. And mm. I looked at it because it brought back memories and she said, oh, Mr. Jones, that's a hurricane lamp. I said, excuse me, where I came from, it was the table lamp. It was a kerosene lamp. We had no electricity, no toilet. It had a dunny down the back and you had to empty the dunny and do all of that. And you took it in turns and you always marvelled at the fact that the tomatoes grew somewhere down the back of the paddock. <laughs> <laughs> and But that was, that, that was it. And so we were told, though, in spite of everything, don't put your hand in someone else's pocket. My mother, don't ever put your hand. If you can't afford it yourself, you can't afford it. 
Mm. Governments would uh, do well at heading that. Well, uh, that's unfortunately. true. We don't. True. Now, and I just said to the Prime Minister the other day, for example, when a, the great thing about Malcolm Fraser, he'd say to me when I'd write an economic speech for him, he always said, Alan, where have you put that sentence in? Yes, PM, it's on page four. I've told you to put it on page one. And what you had to put on page one in an economic speech was to say, you have to remember that governments have no money of their own other than what they take from the taxpayer. Now, here we've got almost 70% of Australia today on welfare. Out of 28% support 70%, they can't. I mean, the this mountains are going to high is a very high mountain to climb. It is. It will be a very, very deep one. I don't think that you can do that by taxing people further. It's no, got to be done by no, growing no. the economy. You have to grow the economy dead right. You can, And, you know, I've just said one of the key things is it's 2020. Well, you grow the economy by giving people jobs. Well, people won't work at the weekend if you have to pay them two and a half times what they'd get paid on Friday. So this penalty rates thing, which was introduced in 1947, you know, penalty rates have got to go out. There's got to be someone who'll stand in the marketplace and say, we can't afford it. And we can't tax people into wealth. No one's ever done that. We can cut expenditures, you and I know, George. That's another story. But, I mean, we've got to grow the cake. And how you grow the cake? Well, you can't have a profitable employee without a profitable employer. And there's another philosophy that's guided me. So in terms of employ- how do we make employers more profitable? Well, I mean, if someone came from outer space and said, hang on, to, 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 to Donald Trump or to here, and, and we've got all these people unemployed now, we don't know how many, but I, we said, well, I've known this fellow, George Christensen, and uh, he, he wants to give five people a job. Oh, really? Yes. But in Australia, he gets taxed for giving them a job. It's called payroll tax. I beg your pardon? I beg your pardon. You've got people unemployed, and the poor coot that wants to give them a job gets taxed for giving them a job. It doesn't make sense. And this is the sort of stuff that we've got here. Then, you know, when you say, oh, well, we pay 35 cents, the marginal tax rate says 30 cents in the dollar. Yeah, it's easy. trips off the tongue. That means you work all January, all February, all March and half April before you get to keep a quid. Mm -hmm. So how do you say, well, hang on, what are we earning? What what are we working for? The productive Australia has got to be encouraged, you know, and it's not. Productive Australia is punished. In my maiden speech, I said that uh, the worst tax was income tax because it's mooching off what you earn. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. Conservative wine. But, Alan, these big problems that you talk about are going to require leaders both now and leaders in the future to to tackle. You're a well-read person. You've been to Oxford. You did a... Uh, arts degree through UQ. I'm assuming that was a liberal arts degree. So yes. you understand the great books. What books do you read or have you read and what books do you recommend that budding leaders, whether it's in the corporate business world, media, political world, what should they read? Right. Isn't that a wonderful question? Well, there's two things I I would say that has always governed my thinking, and I suppose that's as a consequence of what my mother suggested to me. If you want to be successful, I suppose learn how others have won their success. Therefore, I find biography very important, not the kind of rubbish that 
has been written recently. That's sort of indulgent ego tripping. I'm talking about fair dinkum. For example, Charles. I'm not Moore. sure who you're talking about there. <laughs> uh, we, we we're certainly not going to give oxygen by mentioning. I can that's tell right, you. That's right. But anyway, uh, anyway, Charles Moore, for example, has just completed the third volume of the Thatcher. This is very interesting. This is a Thatcher biography, and she's just won a thumping majority. The third election, 107 seats, was the majority, and. From the moment you start reading this, you realise that behind the scenes, and this is the Abbott stuff, that Abbott wins 25 seats from the Labor Party in two elections. It's unbelievable. It's unprecedented in Australian history. From the moment he got there, they were white-handing him, these other people, Turnbull and co, white-handing him right. to get the job that he'd won. Now, Margaret Thatcher, from the moment you open the front page of this, this is not Margaret writing, this is Charles Moore writing, there was this campaign, Heseltine and others, but at least undermining her to the point where, you know, the poll tax brought her undone and so on. Now, but you learn really to, to work your way through this snake pit if you want to mm. be successful. And then, you know, I remember reading Lee Iacocca and they brought him over from cries that of Ford, old Henry Ford, he'd got old and Iacocca, it's a wonderful, wonderful biography of Iacocca and Henry Ford said, well, get this bloke because the Ford Motor Company was in trouble. And Iacocca came over and he got incrementally more and more successful. He took the market share from others and did very well to the point that old Henry Ford wouldn't speak to him because he got jealous of him, just as people are jealous of you, George Christensen. People are jealous of Barillaro because of what he's done in New South Wales and Constance because of what he's done for the bushfires. And this jealousy seeps in. So anyway, <laughs> there's this wonderful exchange between Iacocca and Henry Ford. And he walks in to see him and he said, I need to see you, sir. Very polite. And Henry Ford couldn't look at him. And he said, lift your head. And he then got knowing he was going to go. He's going to walk out the door. He was finished so he could say what he liked. He said, lift your head. I want to talk to you, not talk at you. And he said, we've had unprecedented success. Well, I'm telling you, he said, you better enjoy it. I'm leaving and you don't know how we got it in the first place. And isn't that true? He, you know, leaders, leaders, good leaders surround themselves with really successful people so that it lightens the load, they share the difficulties, and they're rewarded with the with the victories. So that's the sort of stuff that, that I I read to know, have read, to know what others have done. On the other hand, I've always been attracted, I suppose, from university or before that to 19th century. 19th century fiction, and you take a book like, for example, Great Expectations and Charles Dickens, and if you go to the last paragraph of Chapter 9, and there's that little Philip Pirrip who comes from the blacksmith, the forge, and he has this view that Estella Provis uh, is really the kind of girl to whom he aspires, and she's got wealth, and he maps can, and the notion of Great Expectations is you can't really pursue love and wealth at the same time, otherwise you're doing it for the wrong reason. But this is the last paragraph of Chapter 9, and Dickens says when he realises that Pip is going to come unstuck by pursuing her for her wealth rather than for her love, and he says, but it's the same with any life. Pause you who read this and think of the long chains of iron or gold or thorns or flowers that would have bound you, but for the formation of one link on one memorable day. 
So in other words, in life, there are choices. You can choose the iron or gold, the thorn or flowers, and this is the biggest thing that you have to do. It's judgment. Like I always say to young people, you've only got one thing going for you, or what's that? I mean, it's not the fact that you can run fast or you've got a good forehand or you can kick the football or, you know, you're smart and you're intellectual about judgment. It's all you've got going for you is judgment. In other words, if it's tennis, do I hit it up the sideline? Do I lob? What do I do? If it's football, do I run with it? Do I pass it? Judge. If your judgment escapes you, and that's so true of politics, if your judgment escapes you, where do you go? Now, if we, we're right in the middle of this judgment question today, George, because everywhere I turn, everywhere you turn, I find that we're not going to open the border between Queensland and New South Wales mm. because Anastasia Palaszczuk says, uh, my, when my health advisor says it's safe, to, then I'll open it. I'm saying, hang on, hang on. She's an advisor. You're the mm. leader. Your judgment should tell you whether that advice should be accepted or not. And yet here we have everywhere, basically, this joint's been run by health advisors who consistently right. tell us, you know, that this is what's going to happen. Well, of course, all the modelling was wrong. All the scenarios were disgraceful. I mean, you've got that fellow from England, this Professor Neil Ferguson, who's got everything into trouble. This was the bloke. Yeah. He's the principal advisor, this fellow, to the British governments. And in 2001, he said 150,000 people will be killed from bird flu. Well, 282 people died. He said in 2009, swine flu, it'll lead to 65,000 UK deaths. It killed 457. This is the bloke. He said... You know, taking them into a black hole, a black hole because of quote unquote modeling. Now, we've got all this modeling here. Remember, a prominent person in the health bureaucracy advising the government said in early March, 150,000 people die. The same people in the media who said Bill Shorten was going to win by a country mile the last election, those same people are telling us 150,000 people will die. So, as a result, People are terrified, they're frightened, they were driven by fear that just because they got tested positive, then you get a box of nails, get the timber, jump into the coffin and it's all over. When 98% of these cases are mild and we were told, good advice, we wouldn't have enough intensive care beds. Well, there are 14 people in intensive care now and there are hospitals all over the country who are empty. So, you know, judgment is a key in all of this. And so that was the Dickens thing. From, from great expectations. So I, those are the things that have informed me. And, and then I think, George, my mother taught me that if you want to be interesting, you've got to be interested. Now, if, if George Christensen came up to me and said, he's hardly ever met me, and he said, oh, mate, North Queensland, it is the best place to holiday. I don't know where you holiday, but you should try North Queensland. And I said, George, don't waste my time. Fair income, mate, North Queensland, come on, come on. I'm not interested in going there. George Christensen wouldn't have a conversation with me again. He'd go away and say, what a boring bloke that is. I tried to have a yarn with him. He's not remotely interested in anything I was going to say about North Queensland. He just wrote me off. So if you're not interested, you won't be interesting. And so you learn by showing an interest. George, I know nothing about North Queensland. Where do you live? What's it like up there? And you start, think, God, hell, I know a bit. And you learn. And, you know, I say that well, I drive kids down Macquarie Street. You know, Well, why is it called Macquarie Street? They don't know. I mean, the greatest crisis in this country, make no mistake, is the education of our kids. They're being utterly betrayed. Mm -hmm. Why is mm -hmm. Brisbane called Brisbane? Who discovered the Darling Downs? They don't know. Mm -hmm. Now, have you read a poem? Banjo Patterson, have they read a poem? No. These kids can't quote a, a, a verse. And you say to them, seven, eights. They say, seven, eight, seven, eight, seven, eight. Seven, uh, would that be 56? I mean, mm -hmm. you and I learnt this stuff. Yeah, rote learning. Oh, well, all the left got in charge of the classrooms. 
all this ideological rubbish paraded itself as education, and yeah. now our kids are being betrayed. So now, in the coronavirus, we're going to school one day a week. Scott Morrison says, I want, my, I want the kids face-to-face. Oh, no, someone's giving advice to say one day a week. Well, that's not education. Mm. There really has been a systemic dumbing down of, of the current Eric. generation. That's yep. very, very sad. Yep. What yep. you said yes. about bureaucracy, um, Alan, and, and, and leaders not taking or, or leaders taking advice, rather not taking advice, but just accepting the advice as the rule, yes. Yes. it is crazy. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but there was a, uh, a European political philosopher by the name of Hannah Arendt, and she said this about bureaucracy. And as soon as I read this, statement I thought that's just going to be seared into my memory she said uh, that the most formidable form of such dominion bureaucracy or the rule by an intricate system of bureau in which no men neither one nor the best neither the few nor the many can be held responsible and which could probably be called the rule by nobody indeed if we identify tyranny as the government that is not held to give account of itself rule by nobody is clearly the most tyrannical of all, since there is no one left who could even be asked to answer for what is being that's done. That's correct. Uh, well, that's and, classic. And that's yeah. Sad well, that we have that. Well, the parliaments haven't sat. To all of this, the parliament hasn't sat. I mean, the parliament sat during the war. I mean, you've, you've yeah. got to be accountable, haven't you? I mean, and as Orwell said, you know, one George Orwell made this point: once you yield power to governments, you try to get it back. And you look at you know here now here now property. Is now a moratorium on the landlord being able to evict someone. I mean, hello, hello. We own a we own a property. We bust our guts actually to negatively gear the whole damn thing. It's for our retirement, but now we now say there's a six month moratorium on being able to evict someone. Says, oh, I don't pay now. This is good stuff here. How mm. does the landlord get on? Where are the property rights? Some some local property owners that are being derived of of rent by multinational corporations, which That's are. It. Really, absolutely really taking advantage taking of the that. Proverbial. Mm. Just going back to the, the that education thing. You see, you talked about dumbing down. I mean, the people listening to this, I'm sure, and I don't mean any offence to anybody. How would they know? Would they know that there are Confucius institutes all across yeah. Australia? Hey, we've got 14 yeah. of these in 13 universities. There are 67 Confucius classrooms, and people say, "I beg your pardon." 67 where these Confucius classrooms are in primary and secondary schools that get their funding from China. Oh, but mm, there wouldn't be any propaganda well, there, would there? From the what? CCP. Mm. And this is allowed. Who allows yeah. this stuff? It's, 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 it's terrible. That, that, that is actually one of the worst things that's going on in the education system is the creep of uh, Chinese communism trying to influence our young people. Yeah, the left wing. See, the left wing, they don't want excellence. They don't want achievement. They don't want sweat. They, they, they want the lowest common denominator stuff. And, I mean, in New South Wales, there's no pass-fail dichotomy in education now. You don't pass, you don't fail. Well, if there's education without discipline and education without content, it's not education. Mm-hmm. Can I just jump to one question that I've really got on my mind? And you were subject to, uh, you've been subject to politically correct attacks over and over again. But there was one in particular where, uh, you know, you saw this political political correctness movement that's morphed into this cancel culture where they try and boycott people, drive them off the airwaves, off different mm. platforms. Yes. You were subject to that a year ago. Uh, yes. What what do you what do you think? What 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 
pressure was on you at that point in time? And what do you think about this whole political correctness brigade and the cancel culture movement that's out there? Okay. Well, thank you for the question. Look, um, a lot of pressure, of course, is difficult, but let me come back to you because you understand the answer to this yourself. You tell me in that last election Mm. between your team and Bill Shorten's team, you tell me one instance where a corporation went public and talked about the risk to our society if we were going to have 50% renewable energy targets, if we were going to be forced into electric cars, if we were going to have this massive swathe of expenditure via welfare, and not one of them got into the ring. So here are, in my That's situation, right. corporate world, I'm trying through my broadcasting to create a climate out there in which corporations can thrive, where corporations can make profit, where business can do business and therefore employ people and share those benefits with the workers out there. That's what I'm trying to do through the arguments that I undertake and the battles that I fight. And yet here were these people virtually being blackmailed by saying, oh, hang on, you advertise with Alan Jones, we'll sort of drive you nuts and we've got to get in our little sort of you know, keyboard warriors here. And where were they standing up to? Now, some many did, of course, but there are not too many will say, listen, go away. But mind you, George, there should be, there used to be secondary boycott legislation. Uh, the Liberal government caved in to that on the Greens. But basically, if and, and to explain to our viewers what that means, I mean, if I've got a contract with George, and but George is a baker, and someone over here is, is providing George with the wheat, then the bloke with the wheat's having a battle with me. Over here, I provide the fertiliser, and he wants to charge me more for the fertiliser. So he says to George, "You take you, you buy you buy your your wheat, do you, from that bloody Alan Jones? Well, listen, he, he won't. I've got to deal with him over X, Y, and Z. And I'll tell you what: if he doesn't pay me what I want, you won't be getting the wheat. I'm telling you. Now, George's got nothing to do with George. This is a battle between me and a third party." But this can operate now. They're called secondary boycotts. Now, a liberal government should stand in the marketplace and say, you can't run business like this. Here we are saying we want to grow our wealth. Now, we've got to share it. Of course, some employers are exploitative. Of course, some employers don't do the right thing by their workers. We know that. Well, we have forums in which those irregularities can be addressed. Mm. But, you know, the exception doesn't make the rule. Wherever I've been, we try to share and make sure that Everyone gets a quid and everyone gets a benefit. But if you can't grow the show because business won't actually stand up for what is the right thing to do, and I find it extraordinary, the kind of philosophy that you re represent and I represent, Andrew Bolt and these people represent, uh, the business should be saying, hang on, these people, we've got, to, we've got to gather them to our heart with hoops of steel because they are going to secure the future of our business and our capacity to make a quid, which enables us to pay tax, which enables us to provide defence budgets, health budgets, education budgets, and the lot. But, oh, don't wait in the wings for any of these people to put their foot in the ring. Yeah. Well, I find that uh, small and medium businesses uh, do because they're run by actual people. They are close to the Australian families. public, close to their families. workers. Yeah. Families they're yeah, mainly they run by. When you get into the families. corporates, it just basically becomes a, a, a private bureaucracy in these corporate bear moths and they're yes. not a friend of, of you know, by and large, um, not always the rule, but by and large, they've proven to not be a friend of middle Australia, not be a friend not at all. of the conservative not at all. movement. They're not too at, busy trying not at to all. Uh, not at all. Don't prove that they've ever won a battle for the conservative side of politics ever, whether it's the mining tax or whether it's the carbon tax or what. I mean, how yeah. can anyone? 
How could anyone contemplate a 50% renewable energy target to demonize coal, for God's sake, to demonize coal-fired power, which was the source of our whole economic advantage for years and years and years, cheap electricity. Now we've got people migrating to other parts of the world and we're exporting our coal so that they can have cheap electricity and we can't. I mean, it, it's a madness, but it's a battle. It's an ideological battle. I mean, one of the problems, George, here, of course, is the composition of the parliament, isn't it? Um, I mean, the Senate has unbelievable power. And you take this stupid situation whereby every state has 12 senators. Now, there is Tasmania with a population of 500,000. You talk about bureaucracy. They've got 12 senators, Tasmania. They've got five members of the House of Representatives. They've got a lower house of the state parliament of 25. They've got an upper house, I think it's 15, and a whole stack of local government. And there's 500,000 Tasmanians. I mean, while ever, and then this other business about compulsory voting. I mean, heavens above. What? Yeah. Compulsory yeah. voting in a free society. That's right. The only one, I've got to say, the only one around yes. the world that actually does yes. that compels you yes. in a democracy to vote. I that's think if right. you want to choose none of and the above, of that's your choice. That's it. And then preferential voting. I mean, Britain have an election and they know by 10 o'clock at night who's won the election. Here, yeah. we wait forever today because we distribute preferences. And what people don't understand about preferential voting is the bloke who gets the fewest votes, his vote counts about 10 times. It keeps going on and go to the next one and then to the next one and then the next one. The poor bloke who votes Labor or Liberal, his vote counts once. Yeah, and and it allows the Green movement in particular to run the agenda. Uh, And that's why it's infected the Labor Party. It sometimes infects the Liberal Party as well. But uh, last question. You've got plenty of them in your ranks. You've got plenty of them in your ranks. (laughs) Sadly, sadly. Last question, Alan Jones. I have no doubt you've got a great vision for this nation and you're aware of many challenges facing the nation. Mm. But if you had the opportunity to become Prime Minister for the day, what is the one thing that you would do? Well, being a punter, George, I would call it a trifecta. I wouldn't be satisfied with one thing. I would want three <laughs> things. There are three, okay. three, Give you three. There are three, three very big issues. I've alluded to one first, and that is the education system. That has to, you just straight away say, look, we provide the money, but if you're not going to provide the kind of curriculum and we've got to unclutter the curriculum, We've got to make sure that the teachers are teaching content above all else, and we'd have inspectorates and so on. That wouldn't be very hard to do. But at the same time now, you've got the states telling the Commonwealth how this should happen. All that Scott Morrison does is write the cheque. And as I've said to Scott, really, well, now listen, uh, if these people are only going to educate everyone one day a week, well, that's easy. You just say, oh, well, you get a fifth of the money because education is compulsory. I've said I want the kids in the classroom face-to-face. So that's the first. The second thing is energy policy, and you and I have talked about this before. You have to win this battle where we can't possibly demonise coal-fired power. I mean, we've got the situation where we're exporting coal to India and China and South Korea and making their economies grow, and here we are denying that benefit to us. And, of course, the energy costs are making Australian business uncompetitive. Coming back to my earlier point, if we want to grow the business, then we make sure we cut back on the costs to business, and the energy costs are astronomical. And every major businessman in manufacturing and everywhere can tell you. The third thing, of course, is here we are west of the Great Dividing Range with the finest productive land in the world. Queensland has the North Queensland area where massive production, agricultural production, where you are, George, but coming down to where I was at the Darling Downs, going further down towards the Liverpool Plains, going further down to northwest Victoria, we're not a dry continent. 
We've got heaps and heaps of water and we don't harvest it. One dam's mm-hmm. not enough. We've got to build dams and forget the fact that there's a frog under here or a toad under there. Get on with the damn job because at, until we do that, until we water Australia and take advantage, we could feed the whole of Asia. We built a railway line from Alice Springs to Darwin and we've got nothing to put on it. Now, we mm-hmm. could feed the whole of Asia with the productive capacity of inland Australia. So education, water and energy, and we'd be whistling like George we used to be. But we've That's abandoned right. all of those things. We've abandoned them all. Well, hopefully in this new world post this pandemic, uh, we will be getting back to where we were and changing the future. Thank you very much, Alan Jones. Thank you for all that you've done throughout your long history on radio, uh, the influence that you have had for the good on uh, the political scene, and thank you for joining me on Conservative One. Most welcome, George. We'll talk again, I'm sure. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You've been listening to the Conservative One Podcast with George Christensen.